America is back. Diplomacy is back. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from sunny, for once, Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also around the corner here in Brussels. And with us today, and also here in Brussels, is Adam Cooper. Adam is a conflict mediator. He runs the Cyber Mediation Project at the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and hosts the Mediator Studio, an Oslo Forum podcast. And he's here today to talk about mediation, cybersecurity, and disinformation. Welcome. Great to be with you. So, Adam, we talk a lot on War and Peace about, well, War and Peace. We don't, um, interestingly, except in passing, talk all that much about mediation. What is mediation? What does that mean? So we're the people who stand between warring parties. So if you've got a civil war or an interstate conflict, we facilitate peace talks, in short. And the reason why I suppose we're not always part of the, the narrative around conflicts is that we stay primarily in the shadows. It's a work which by its very nature is incredibly sensitive and often the conflict parties trust us uh, because of our discretion. So that's perhaps why we, we're not always in the headlines, but often they're behind the scenes. So you're doing a sort of shuttle diplomacy, right? You're going back and forth and trying to figure out where the Venn diagrams overlap or where the overlap is in the Venn diagram. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, some people will have as their kind of vision of mediation, a UN mission and a, a special representative of the Secretary General with a mandate from the Security Council and they'll facilitate talks. And I suppose an organization like the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, or HD as we call it, we tend to work more informally and more quietly in those situations where perhaps the conflict parties don't want something that is kind of higher profile. And often in those contexts which are especially sensitive, so armed groups that are hard to reach or governments that are challenging to work with, that's our bread and butter. But despite this uh, secrecy and despite the uh, sensitivity of all this, you have managed to persuade a whole series of rather high-profile mediators to appear on your podcast, The, the Mediator Studio. And uh, tell us, what, what have you learned from talking to them all? It's been a really interesting set of conversations because, as you said, these are people who generally who work behind the scenes. But actually, the lessons that they have to share with us about what's worked in negotiations and kind of more importantly, what hasn't worked, I think is really important to get out there. And we we normally do this behind closed doors at something called the Oslo Forum each year. But because of the pandemic, we thought maybe there's an opportunity to persuade people to share what they've learned more publicly. So whether that's the Colombian government negotiator and a FARC rebel sitting together talking about how you know, former enemies work together towards a peace agreement, or whether that's, you know, the envoys to Libya from the UN talking about how they were undermined in their work, but yet persisted and and managed to get a ceasefire agreement and move towards elections. I think that's really important for us at a time when, you know, it can feel like the world is full of conflict and that we don't have the tools at our disposal to resolve that. I feel that these interviews reveal a little bit about how we might deal with some of those problems. So what have you learned, right? Um, you've had these really interesting conversations and normally, right, you've spent your career thinking about how to do mediation yourself, but this kind of gives you an opportunity to talk 
to other people who have been doing it. What are some things that have surprised you uh, coming away from all of these conversations? I mean, I think the thing which has grabbed me most emotionally when talking with these people is just how much they have to suffer through really very real challenges of things that are outside of their control. So I'm thinking of when I interviewed Hassan Salami, the former UN envoy to Libya, and he talked about how on the brink of hosting this national conference, that there was an attack led by General Haftar and which undermined the conference. And, and not only that, but the very members of the Security Council that had been saying that they had backed Hassan's work were secretly actually in favor of this offensive. And just that sense, I mean, he said, you know, I felt stabbed in the back. That sense of betrayal, you know, you, you really do empathize with how frustrating that must have been. And you have a sort of newfound respect for the persistence of mediators in the face of challenges like that. So I think that's been one uh, lesson that I've drawn. And I would say the other thing has been, you know, we've now done two seasons of this, spoken to a pretty wide cross range of people. We've tried to bring people on from really different backgrounds and be as inclusive as possible. The role of people's individual characters and their ego in particular, has really come through. So I think that, you know, you have those who are kind of more assertive. I, I remember Lise Doucette, the BBC's chief international correspondent, talking about uh, Marty Atasari, who facilitated some of the talks in Aceh about how he basically told the rebel group, if you demand independence, I'm going to walk away from this. I'm not going to mediate your talks. And so that's a kind of very bullish style of mediation. And then you contrast that with someone like Kathy Ashton, the, the former EU high representative, who just worked very quietly, very diligently between Serbia and Kosovo and then later in the Iran talks. And the fact that she subsumed her own ego and made it about the conflict parties, made them own the process, I think was a huge kind of reason for her success. Fascinating. And then you bring in this whole cyber thing, right? That's the other half of your job is cyber mediation. So what makes it cyber mediation? I mean, presumably you're not just talking about bringing people in for a Zoom call to mediate between them, right? There's something more to it than that. There is indeed. I mean, I suppose the way to, to think about it is that, you know, as an organization, we're active in 30, 40 conflicts around the world. And I guess over the past decade, many of my colleagues in the field have observed that those who are waging war, the conflict parties, are increasingly deploying digital tools in pursuit of their objectives, right? Whether that be offensive cyber operations, so kind of states hacking into their adversaries, critical infrastructure, or whether that be disinformation on social media. This is part and parcel of the conflict landscape now. And we as an industry are not terribly well equipped at the moment to deal with that, to even understand it, let alone to kind of craft a, a response to resolving some of those conflicts. So that's why a few years ago I was kind of given this job of, of trying to work out well, what we would do in this area. And I feel that we're basically playing catch up, right? That those waging war have become very sophisticated at it. And those on the peacemaking side, we're still working out a little bit of a game plan on how we respond. So when you get a mediator coming to you for advice on what to do about social media, I understand you, you do brief them. And what are the main things you're telling them to watch out for? I mean, I think that a huge barrier to addressing a lot of these issues is helping to meet mediators to understand that what happens online 
is knowable, at least to some extent. Because if I think back to some of the conversations I've had with colleagues, you know, there's a sense of paralysis that can come because they're not quite sure exactly what the narratives online are. They're not quite sure who's behind them. And okay, we're never going to have full visibility of sort of what happens on the internet. That's an unachievable goal. But Technically, those things, we're able to understand them a lot better than many people assume. So I think the starting point, and this is maybe where groups like Crisis Group also come in, is that, you know, we've got to have a basic level of analysis on understanding what's happening online. And not for the sake of it, because what happens online profoundly affects what happens in the real world. So I think if we use that as our starting point to just help people to understand, okay, what's actually happening and what are the conflict risks that stem from it, then we can begin to think about operationally what we do about it. So when we talk about cyber conflict, right, one of the things we mean is these uh, trash talking on the internet and putting out potentially misinformation on the internet. The other piece of it is uh, cyber attacks. States talks about cyber attacks. Actually, it can be a little confused, right, because it can mean everything from you broke into my server to you took down my website to you have knocked out power to half a country. I mean, are these the same? Are they different? Do we kind of want to differentiate between them? Is there usefulness to this sort of cyber catch-all phrasing? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important that we pass those things out and focus on those forms of digital conflict which undermine peace processes the most. And that's going to vary widely by country. So, you know, if you think about offensive cyber operations, you know, that is a capacity which an increasingly large number of states has, but it's a less widespread problem than disinformation on social media, where the barriers to entry are pretty low. Pretty much every political party and armed group and government is going to have some sort of cell which is able to do this. And so actually, you know, we've got to we've got to separate out those things and think about what are the sets of conflicts where we're most worried about the cyber dimension and what are the the, the conflicts in which we're most worried about social media and disinformation. They're not going to be the same. And just going back to the mediation question again and the way that you advise mediators to proceed. You've made a case that mediators, and that was a really good episode you had with Kathy Ashton, really explaining how it actually works. She would never go on social media to explain herself. But are there instances where you are now saying to mediators, go on to social media, tell what you think, tell both sides that there are certain red lines they can't go over? I mean, what is the new normal? Yeah, so I think what that question speaks to is the dual task that mediators have to do, which is on the one hand to talk to the conflict parties about their behavior online, and ideally to try to get those conflict parties to change their behavior and capture that in agreements of some kind. And then on the other side of it, you're also encouraging mediators to be, when appropriate, more proactive about how they engage online. Because if your complaint is, you know, all the narratives about a peace process are negative, well, you know, maybe there's more that you could be doing as a mediator to encourage people to see the hard work that you're doing and and to make an argument in favor of peace. And that's going to be hard sometimes because especially when talks are confidential, for very good reasons, people aren't going to want to be forthcoming. But there's other processes which are which are much more open and where there is an opportunity if people are forward leaning about it and strategic about it to better harness technology to communicate about what they're doing, to listen to voices from conflict affected communities using social media tools to really enhance their work. So, you know, to simplify, we're trying to 
work with mediators to to mitigate the downside risks of social media that the conflict parties are responsible for, um, but also to be smart about how they harness their technology themselves. And what examples do you give of that upside? Is there some mediation where you've seen a proactive policy really make a big difference positively? Yeah, I, th- I think we're just beginning to build the evidence base for that, Hugh. And it's still early days. And in general, you know, we're not a particularly tech-savvy industry. You know, it's the kind of you know senior officials who want their emails printed out for them, etc. But, you know, things are changing. And, and I think of the interview that I did with Stephanie Williams uh, and her work in, in Libya, where she was very proud during the Libya Political Dialogue Forum, as they called it, where, you know, she engaged in what she called digital dialogues, right, using various chatbots and other tools and sometimes large Zoom calls and really brought in many more people that would have been otherwise involved. And particularly in an age of COVID, you do have kind of renewed interest in working out how those things can support peace processes. I would say that, you know, we have to be wary not to kind of fetishize technology and overstate its capacities. There's going to be certain conversations which are going to always need to happen closed door, face to face. But I think particularly given the drive to kind of make peace processes more inclusive, Social media is an underutilized tool. And if we're smart about it, I think it can really help our work. So on the flip side, is social media making it harder to have the quiet, secretive talks you need? Because, you know, when with everybody out there, with every position being broadcast to the entire world and commented on and torn to pieces, I wonder if it's not harder than to back away from things. So whereas it used to be that these statements were negotiating positions, now they are the end all and be all, which means that there's less overlap. Is that what I'm seeing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if when we kind of survey our colleagues in HD about how social media affects their work, undermines them, the leaking of confidential information is always pretty high up that list. And that's a hard one to solve. We just live in an era where those things um, just happen with frequency. And if you you allow mobile phones into a meeting room, things are going to get out. But at the same time, I think what it highlights is the need to kind of talk to conflict parties about that, right? And to as part of the rules of the road of of how one should conduct yourself in a negotiation, what you do and don't say on social media has surely got to be part of it. And again, we've seen only a few examples in peace talks of mediators, you know, coming up with specific guidance that conflict parties should follow in this. And I think that there's a lot more there that could be done. I mean, we should be realistic. If people want to leak stuff, it's going to get out somehow. But we do need to find a way to kind of at least prevent the most egregious behavior. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. A podcast of the International Crisis Group, and we are talking to Adam Cooper of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue about cyber mediation, mediation in general, disinformation, and all of those very exciting and complicated things. So what is the role of misinformation and disinformation in all of this? Is it uh, the same as propaganda always was, or has that changed in our brave new world? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, this is not a new story, right? And and states and anyone at war with each other are going to push out their narrative of the conflict, whether it's online or offline. And so it's not a new problem in that sense. But I think that the challenge that the kind of internet poses is the speed of it, the power of it, and its ability to 
tailor a message to a particular constituency. So that allows for a degree of manipulation, which was previously much harder, shall we say, through traditional media. And that's why we need to be worried about it. And, you know, we do have to be precise about what we mean by these problems. You know, Libya is, is a kind of crucible for a lot of this stuff right now. So, you know, in the same way that you have foreign actors who are kind of fueling the conflict in various ways, you know, their actions take place online as much as they do offline as well. And that might be to push certain narratives of the conflict, but it can also be very specifically to undermine peace talks at critical phases. So during the most recent round of political talks, you know, you saw fake agreements being circulated in advance of the talks. You saw death threats against the officials being widely circulated and not really being pulled down as quickly as you would have liked. And so those kinds of things make a mediator's job, which is already incredibly difficult, that much harder. Clearly, these things are outside the direct control of the parties and the mediators involved. So who is responsible? I mean, our researchers crisis group in Cameroon found that actually the social media platforms involved were incredibly understaffed and even unaware of what was was happening. So how are you going to police any of this? I mean, and is there any vaccination against what I've seen called an infodemic? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is one of the really tricky things about kind of trying to translate the 20 years of work that we've done as an organization facilitating peace agreements to the online realm, because I've been using phrases like conflict parties, which implies that this is a kind of neat problem and all we need to do is to come up with sort of digital ceasefires, if you will, where the very same people who are responsible for conflict in the real world get them to restrain themselves online as well. And the reality is that it's much fuzzier than that, whether it's because people outsource some of their activities to sort of black PR firms, digital marketing companies, or like in any conflict, right, they have proxies. And sometimes their own supporters who might be kind of organically supporting them. And, and what do we do about that? So it's not easy to neatly draw a line about who's kind of should be part of an agreement and initiative. For sure, I think that we need to start with the conflict parties themselves as the dominant actors who have influence on their supporters and proxies. Um, And so even if that's insufficient, I think that's where we have to begin. And then you correctly brought up the, the question of the responsibility of the social media platforms as well. And I think that there, I suppose I carry the baggage of having spent seven years working for HD in Myanmar when Facebook's role in, in what happened to the Rohingya population has been well documented. And, you know, there could be no starker example of how neglect by major companies of hate speech that is allowed to run rampant online, yeah, the, the effect that it can have on, on people's lives. And I'm not entirely convinced that we fully learned the lessons of episodes like that. I mean, you see still that Facebook staff who've departed complain about the under-resourcing of the rest of the world (laughs) lumped together. And the rest of the world are the countries that you at Crisis Group study and work on and analyze. And they're the sorts of conflict areas which we at HD work on and try to mediate. And there's a a fundamental under-resourcing And there's also, I think, more of a need to work out in these really difficult and complex environments, what actually would a better response by the social media platforms look like, right? And that is super hard. And there, I think, you know, we need to kind of work with them on helping them to design a policy response. 
Yeah, I mean, it's how do you do this? I mean, you say the, the rest of the world is under-resourced, but the United States has got to be the best resourced, and these are American companies for the most part, and you see the posts on Twitter and on Facebook that relating to U.S. politics that seem just as incendiary. So is it even a question of resourcing? I mean, yeah, you need somebody paying attention. And then what, so what do they do? What should they be doing? Yeah, so I think it's a really hard one. And, you know, the debate sometimes gets trapped in, in kind of a one on censorship and, and freedom of speech and uh, takedowns in the parlance. So, and I think that that is part of it and a legitimate part of the discussion in that there are certain lines which have been drawn by the companies and they should be properly enforced and, and policed. And so proper resourcing of that can help to implement those policies. But we can't limit it at that. And I, I think that when I look at the sorts of behaviors online that can undermine peace processes, there's a viral content which can emerge, like, for example, a fake peace agreement, which might not theoretically violate a company's policies, but actually causes severe harm and can really potentially instigate conflict and, and to lose lives. And so even to track what content is going viral in these sorts of countries when sensitive peace talks are underway, that is a basic task which I'm not convinced is really happening at the moment. And so I think, you know, the companies have got a lot to do in, in just simply tracking what's happening and to find measures to to address it, which may be pulling it down and it may be other things. It may be labeling information as they've experimented with, but it's it's not an easy one. I'll admit that much. What about fact-checking? Is that something that you've seen really make a difference anywhere that you that managed to stop something like a false peace treaty? Yeah, you know, I, I think those kind of initiatives are helpful, but what it shouldn't necessarily do is kind of absolve the social media companies of their core responsibilities by kind of asking third-party fact-checkers to do their job. And then I do think that we have to be conscious of the limitations of of what the platforms can uh, and can't do. So sometimes we call this social media whack-a-mole, right? That if, you, if you're going to kind of pull down a set of networks or accounts, in all likelihood, those things will manifest themselves in another form elsewhere. And it's not to say there's no value in, in taking action against those networks in the first place. But, you know, ultimately, there's an underlying political driver that's making a conflict party put that out in the first place. And so that's why as an organization at HD, the piece of the puzzle that we're most interested in is really kind of talking to the conflict parties about these actions, right? Because it's a hard topic to talk about. People don't really like to disclose the capabilities that they have in this space. But I think the most effective intervention that we could possibly make is to get conflict parties to alter their behavior rather than to treat, keep kind of whacking bots, networks and accounts that spread hate speech. I mean, that's super appealing, right, that people just behave themselves better. But why would I expect somebody who's been waging a war to watch their language online? I think it's fair to say that there's a whole set of conflicts which you have one very dominant actor, particularly if they've got sophisticated information operations capabilities that say, you know, the opposition or an armed group lacks, where, you know, if you were to come to them and suggest that they restrain themselves, it's not a viable proposition, right? But I, I do think that when the underlying political dynamic is trending in a positive direction, 
right? And you have got conflict parties who are, for whatever reason, see some benefit in a managing their tensions in a detente of sorts, that talking to them about their behavior online is critical, right? And that we are only seeing that happen in, in really small ways so far. So again, to come back to the Libya case, you have this ceasefire last year. And really interestingly, kind of one clause in it talks about the conflict parties and, and their role and their usage of social media. And it's one paragraph. You'd probably want that to be in a much fuller and more thought through form. But it's the beginnings of a conversation which I think is necessary. So institutions can be kind of slow in catching up to technology and, and change. What are big international organizations like the United Nations doing to try to regulate uh, their own members, right? Nation states who, just like anybody else, are as responsible for these sorts of things. So, you know, at the UN, there have been strenuous efforts over the past 15 years to define what norms of responsible state behavior are, what confidence-building measures in the cyber domain might look like. They've been painful and difficult discussions. I think you talk to any of the diplomats involved, uh, they'll tell you how hard that is. And that's a reflection of the geopolitical environment more broadly, right? That we do have, you know, quite different conceptions of the internet that, that Russia and other states will have versus those in kind of Western like-minded countries. And so those have been really very challenging. But at the same time, there is a kind of, there is a consensus that exists. And, and recently through a UN process that involved all member states, you know, they did manage to, to get to a conclusion of sorts. But I think as with any sort of new weapon that emerges, there's a kind of lag between the multilateral processes, the discussion around the norms, and actually to what extent it impacts state behavior. Because I think that, you know, still by and large, you know, you look at some of the norms, for example, on, on not intruding into other countries' critical infrastructure, those are breached by many, many states. And actually, you know, working out how we enforce adherence to those norms or hold states accountable is something which is hotly debated, but we don't have a solution to that problem yet. And so, you know, there's a lot of work to be done at that level still. And then, and then work for the maybe organizations like HD can do in a more discreet setting amongst particular states or in particular regions. So often listening to you, I have this feeling that uh, we're talking about solving something that is actually not very new necessarily. I mean, social media has been with us 20, 30 years now. What is the TikTok of the infodemic? Where are the things that you're really worried that are going to balloon in the future? What's coming down the road? I mean, I think there's there's an enormous number of difficulties. But, you know, one thing that we we really struggle with, I'd say, is, you know, when we think about kind of social media, a lot of the debates about policy in this focus on what you can see publicly. But as we know from our own lives, like for the majority of your interactions, they're happening in private groups, whether it's on WhatsApp or, or Signal. And those things are, you know, by design, encrypted and confidential. And those things can severely amplify conflict in, in many settings. And so, you know, the very things which kind of protect those channels, that confidentiality, that encryption, are the things that also make sort of moderation of any of those discussions really hard. And so, you know, I absolutely don't think that we have a solution to that problem. And I think the other big trend that, that we need to be aware of is that 
you know, this is an area where the capacities are going to become more widespread. So even if governments are going to have the most capable sort of information operations, armed groups are increasingly cottoning onto this, political parties too. And so you're going to get a denser web of actors who are able to either conduct offensive cyber operations or be able to kind of run fairly sophisticated information operations on social media. And so this problem is likely to kind of get worse, I think, before it gets better. So I hope we're not ending on too pessimistic a note, but I do think this is something we're going to have to wrestle with in more and more countries. No, I think that's the perfect warning note to end off end with. I mean, we're not just about conflict prevention, we're about early warning, and uh, that's uh, definitely something we need to do. But uh, thank you so much, Adam. It's It's been a great pleasure having you on the show. You're very welcome. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, we hope you learned as much as we did from this conversation. For more insights from Adam, you can follow him on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. You can tune into his podcast, which you've heard so much about uh on our podcast. Uh, it's called The Mediator Studio. And you should also check out the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, which also lives out in cyberspace at HD Center. That's with the uh, UK spelling, C-E-N-T-R-E dot O-R-G. And I'll add my own endorsement of the really interesting uh, podcast guests on the Mediator Studios. And uh, for our own work uh, from Crisis Group on conflict resolution and conflict prevention, do check out our own website, www.crisisgroup.org. You should follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Olaker. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, also at Crisis Group. Do feel free to tweet at us about what you like or don't like in the podcast. We will pay attention and we will take action if you're listening through spotify or itunes we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and perhaps a review as well and if you do tweet at us uh, we might respond we might read your tweet and put it into a podcast i mean think about these things it could be your moment in the cyber sun War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. You might be interested in checking out a few of the others. Big thanks to producer Bull Media and to our own coordinators, Rebecca Serihun Asafar and Patricia Alonso, who make sure that Olio and I are up to speed each time we record an episode. And our biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. We can't wait to chat with you some more in two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.